Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Leonard Cole will join us to discuss Chasing the Ghost. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, the neutrino would perhaps never be discovered were it not for one scientist, Fred Rhinus. Joining us today to discuss the fascinating story and history of Dr. Rhinus is Dr. Leonard Cole. Dr. Cole is an expert on bioterrorism and on terror medicine. He's an adjunct professor at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School and at Rutgers University Newark. He's written numerous articles for professional journals as well as general publications, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, and others, and has written several popular books, including The Anthrax Letters, which was named an honor book by the New Jersey Council for the Humanities. He has penned Chasing the Ghost, Noblest Fred Rhinus, and The Neutrino. Dr. Cole, thank you so much for joining us today on The Grok Science Show. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, certainly a fascinating individual, Fred Rhinus. How did you become interested in him and decide to put this biography together? Well, an atypical approach. I am not a physicist, but I have a general understanding of basic science. My cousin, Fred Rhinus, who was an older cousin of mine, uh, I knew from the time I guess I was two or three years old when we would uh, meet at family events, gatherings, and I always had great regard for him as I was growing up as a child. Now, along the ways, I think he had an interest in me because uh, he knew I was a pretty good student, and he took me one time to the Museum of Science and Industry in New York City. And so I did know him quite well, and he appreciated my interest in science, and certainly I did in him as an individual. So although, as you mentioned, I've written several books and articles, more on biological issues, biological weapons and such, but Fred Rhinus eventually went on to win the Nobel Prize in physics in 1995 for the co-discovery of the neutrino. He worked with a colleague. The colleague that he worked with passed away 40 years ago, and because they, they both actually made the discovery in 1956, was met with a lot of approval and appreciation and compliments that discovery was of the neutrino. But he got the Nobel Prize almost 40 years later. By then, his colleague Clyde Cowan had long been dead. He himself was a bit elderly. He was almost 80 years old, and he died actually three years after he got the prize. So the past several years, now and then I would think about him, and I know the story pretty well from a personal standpoint as a uh, when he was younger in his uh, lifespan and career. And I just thought it was a marvelous story, not only because the neutrino is a, a remarkable subatomic particle, and we can talk about that in a moment, but because Fred is a remarkable guy, a guy who not only was a great scientist, but he had terrific singing quality. He at one point even thought of 
when he was in college that he might want to make a career of opera. But he was a stage performer. He was a, held the lead in local theater productions of various plays, Gilbert and Sullivan. He wrote essays. He wrote poetry. And I tried to bring all of that to life in the book that has just been published. He was certainly an exciting and very charismatic individual. Are you surprised that he'd never been covered before? To the extent that started the project about five years ago, not knowing as much as I do now about how the prize is awarded. And sometimes, as Fred noticed in his own lifetime, and by the way, he was aware that he had been in the running and that he had several nominations for year after year after year, but never actually was awarded the prize, as I said, until just three years before he died in 1995. And when I spoke to dozens of scientists and people who knew him, they're a bit elderly now, but they've been around a while. They knew him. They loved to talk about him. And I can't count how many, but several actually said he should have won the Nobel Prize earlier. Nobody really knows how the Nobel Committee makes its decisions. And Fred, toward the end of his life, was talking to one of his colleagues, a younger colleague, who told me that Fred and he had a talk, and he asked Fred about how he felt about not getting the prize. And Fred said he understands that some people get it, and maybe they don't deserve it that much. And some people don't get it who deserve it. So I guess uh, he thought of himself in the latter category. At least he had a good sense of humor about it. He certainly had a marvelous run through his professional life, in the, even though belatedly didn't get the note until late, late in, the, in the game that he got the prize. But he had many, many other rewards and uh, experiences and the kind of personality he had. In fact, I'm sure that what I've written could not have been as intimately understood as I was able to from knowing the family so well, his children and his mother. His grandmother and father and my grandmother and father were the same people. So it was it was a close association. So I was I could offer that in a book form that others could not. How did he become interested in science? How did he go about his life? Yes. Well, say that in his Nobel lecture, which all Nobel Prize winners are asked to give at the time of the ceremony when they get the prize, he mentioned that his first interest in science was when he was attending a religious school as a child. And for some reason, he curled up his fingers and looked through them as if he was looking through a telescope. And he actually had it poised in a certain area of the window where there was light coming in and broke into different colors, rainbow colors. And the process, the scientific process, was diffraction. He said that was the first time he became interested, so probably around eight years old or so, uh, in, in, in science. Well, he got his Ph.D. from New York University in the mid-40s. After that, I didn't see him very much because he had moved toward the West to a location in 1944 that uh, nobody knew about because that was in the middle of the building of an atomic bomb. And he was part of the project. He was only there for a year before the war ended, but he was part of the project that helped build the atomic bomb. And he stayed at Los Alamos, the last uh, national laboratory there that was built just uh, as a secret city at first. But then uh, he was there for another oh, almost 15 years, then moved on to be uh, head of physics at Case Western. And then also, finally, the last 30 years at the University of California at Irvine. So uh, the at Los Alamos, he, he and his colleague, Clyde Cowan, just got together and said, you know, we've heard about the neutrino, we know about it, but it's all theoretical. It was first postulated theoretically as an important subatomic particle in 1930, 
And so for uh, more than 20 years, it was just put on the shelf as some scientists thought would never be discovered, even if it were somehow believed to exist. The reason that the neutrino is so unique is that it is very, very, very abundant in all parts of the cosmos, the universe. In fact, let me just tell you a, a startling understanding that as we sit here as individuals, as human beings, trillions of these neutrinos pass through our bodies every second. Now, you might say, how do you know that? And well, I don't feel anything. I don't see anything. I don't smell anything. Well, that was the great mystery of it. And I, I'll leave it for readers of the book to see how Rhinus went about actually making that detection. That's an exciting story in itself. And the neutrino has since then become very, very appreciated, much more appreciated as being one of the most important ingredients in the creation of the universe, that the first neutrinos were formed, theoretically anyway, one second after the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago. How people figure this out or, or understand it to be fact rather than just mathematical formulation, I'll leave that for the book. I'll only tell you that my end of it is to introduce a lot of the humanity, uh, the personality, the charisma, and the many skills that Fred Rhine has had that would be very much unlike many other successful scientists. It certainly take a very unique individual to go chasing after this ghost, this thing which is so theoretically hard to detect. What kind of personality would do that? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a great question, and I should have perhaps said something earlier about what do you mean by chasing the ghost? The reason that it was considered a, that, that the ghost is an appropriate a part of the title is that even today, well over half a century following its firm and understood discovery, it's still called a ghost or a ghost particle. And that was because it was understood to possibly exist, but several scientists, in fact, the a large majority in the community, apparently, thought it would never be discovered because it has the unique qualities of being almost without any mass whatsoever. It has no electrical charge, and it can pass through objects, as I said before, like human beings, or through solid substances of any sort, through tons and tons of lead, through the earth. And it, most of these particles just keep going. And Fred, in so many words, wrote somewhere in the middle of his lifespan after discovering the particle. He posed the question, people want to know, why did my partner in this and I want to do this work and try to discover it? And his answer was very simple, because so many people said it couldn't be done. So that tells you something about his personality. There's one lovely picture in the book when he was about nine years old. And he was posing between two of his fellow playmates. Either side of him, the, each of these kids had a big smile on their face. And Fred is in between them. But he's not standing as they are. He's upside down. He has his legs wrapped around a, a lower branch of a tree. And he's actually posed between the two in an upside down position. And I derive from that a sense that Fred, all his life, I think, was a bit of a performer, and he liked to do unusual things, and he liked to do things that are not always simple and easy, but go at the task. It must have taken that sort of charismatic individual to convince people to this project, I mean, but it, it is quite an undertaking, and he probably really had to do some convincing. Absolutely. By the time it was actually proved and discovered, 
Uh, there was a, uh, a bit of reluctance by some in the scientific community to say, oh, this is definitive. Now we know it's there. And this is not unusual, by the way. There's no such or hardly ever such a thing as a eureka moment out of nowhere. It takes a lot of work and a lot of skepticism. And it took a few years, even after he was working on this project and thought he had uh, the solution at hand. It took a bit of convincing, but more importantly, it took time. And as the, the various predictions that would come out of the theory of, that he developed before actually demonstrating it by way of detectors that they built, some of these detectors today, by the way, are, are gigantic. He, he had one that could easily fit into a uh, large living room. And as he was doing the, this kind of work, there were people saying, oh, no, you can't really do it. But then ultimately, as the years passed, certainly after 1956, when he actually did the work, more people and more and more became convinced. More and more scientists said, well, yeah, he maybe really should get a Nobel Prize eventually. So one of the thrills for me was to talk to so many people who had enormous regard for him and were very pleased at the time that he got the award, ultimately. How did he feel about his ongoing work after that, interactions with other scientists following the neutrino work? Well, I used the word loved and adored by so many people that I met. He was a unique kind of personality. I mentioned before that he had a terrific singing voice, and he did other things like writing poetry and essays to keep his mind in different directions. I spoke to his daughter at length, and as she put it, you could never understand who my dad was until you understood how important it meant, science meant to him. But also, as I heard from several scientists, out of nowhere, if he would be sitting in a room, a small room with some other students, or even when he was teaching in larger classes, he would burst into song, song, opera, Gilbert and Sullivan. He was an encyclopedia of knowledge about Gilbert and Sullivan and knowing so many of the songs in their operettas. And so he really stood out just by virtue of who he was and how he behaved and the talents that he put to use that were not just in the world of science, but in other areas. I think some people would say, well, how could a person be such a terrific and focused scientist if he's doing so many other things at the same time? Well, he wasn't always doing them all at the same time, obviously. He would be in a show. He was a star figure in Inherit the Wind. Maybe some of your listeners would be familiar with Inherit the Wind. It's a great show, a great movie, and in their local production, he was the character that was Clarence Darrow, who was in real life arguing in the Scopes trial, the monkey trial, about whether evolution was a legitimate scientific understanding of how humans became humans versus the people who said, no, it's a, a literal understanding of how humans became humans is uh, when they were created according to the Bible, and that they were only, from the very beginning, created uh, maybe 10,000 years ago, rather than millions and millions of years back. So he was actually, at, in particularly Inherit the Wind, he took the part of a lawyer, but he was explaining the science that Clarence Darrow, the actual lawyer, had to do uh, in that trial. It's just a, a, an eventful and fascinating characteristic. And I would also say that in the very difficult times that we've all had versus about the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic now, 
and the discomfort with many people have had, and I shouldn't just say discomfort, but the terrible health and medical and unfortunate death experiences in so many families and people. On a personal level, to continue doing research during this period, it was a great relief for me to see what a real scientist was like and how he managed his life. It was a kind of uplifting. And I think we could all use a little upward spirit uh, in these difficult times. Indeed, indeed. As an individual, that sort of personality, he must have been a great teacher. He was regarded as a fine teacher. He started a course for non-science majors. This is at the University of California. Started it in the 1970s. It uh, was a course that he said, you know, you don't really need difficult math or formulas, uh, advanced mathematics, nothing, nothing about hard algebra even. You can keep people's interest because, as he put it, he thinks there's something wrong, absolutely an aberration, an abhorrence, actually. He said that supposedly, purportedly, educated people don't know anything about how a rainbow creates the various colors that it does in the form of refraction, or even about the special theory of relativity, which would scare a lot of people, probably most people, know little or nothing about relativity. Einstein's earlier discoveries at the beginning of the 20th century. The way he would describe things and teach them, he had great responses from students. He started the very first class. There were maybe 20, 25 students in his class, he recalled. Two years later, after the class had been given a couple more times, he was over 200 students coming into the class, which I think is evidence enough of uh, the attraction that he was able to enjoy from teaching and the student body response. What was his life like post-Nobel Prize? What was last year's like? And how's his uh, legacy grown since then? Interesting. The legacy has grown enormously following his death. He only lived a couple of years after getting the prize, and he uh, attended some conferences. And But by then, he was really not very productive. He was ill. But following his life, as I said, all we have to do, look at a couple of things in terms of legacy. At the time that he was working on the, the neutrino question, back in the 1950s and, and uh, even after into the 60s, there were probably only a, a few dozen sci physicists, scientists mainly, a few astronomers, interested in the neutrino question, even after it was identified. As recently as last year, there was a neutrino conference, a, a virtual conference. People could not get together. And there are these neutrino conferences uh, every couple of years. For decades, there would be maybe 500, 800, 900 people attending a neutrino conference. When they did the virtual reality one last year, mid-2020, there were 3,400 people who at least at some level were scientists and uh, or graduate students about to become full-scale scientists in neutrino physics with an interest in neutrinos. So the, the uh, study of this subject has grown enormously. There is a national laboratory called the Fermilab, named after Enrico Fermi, in Illinois. And that was the base of where the conference was supposed to be held in real life, but ultimately was in a virtual circumstance. And uh, that national laboratory has on its website a declaration that it is the headquarters of neutrino studies in the United States. 
actually at several laboratories and other locations around the United States and around the world, there are neutrino departments and specialty areas. But I spent some time at Fermilab, and again, it's just the legacy of Fred is, is all over the place when you talk about neutrinos. All right. Well, we were just talking with Dr. Leonard Cole. He has penned the new book, Chasing the Ghost, Nobelist Fred Rhinus and the Neutrino. Dr. Cole, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. <laughs>